Chapter Twenty One of Louise de la Valliere. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Louise de la Valliere by Alexander Dumas. Chapter Twenty One. Monsieur Malicorne, the Keeper of the Records of France. Two women, their figures completely concealed by their mantles, and whose masks effectually hid the upper portion of their faces, timidly followed Manicamp's steps. On the first floor, behind curtains of red damask, the soft light of a lamp placed upon a low table faintly illumined the room, at the other extremity of which, on a large bedstead, supported by spiral columns, around which curtains of the same colour as those which deadened the rays of the lamp had been closely drawn, lay de Guiche, his head supported by pillows, his eyes looking as if the mists of death were gathering, his long black hair scattered over the pillow set off the young man's hollow temples. It was easy to see that fever was the chief tenant of the chamber. De Guiche was dreaming. His wandering mind was pursuing, through gloom and mystery, one of those wild creations delirium engenders. Two or three drops of blood, still liquid, stained the floor. Manicon hurriedly ran up the stairs, but paused at the threshold of the door, looked into the room, and seeing that everything was perfectly quiet, he advanced towards the foot of the large leathern armchair, a specimen of furniture of the reign of Henry the Fourth, and seeing that the nurse, as a matter of course, had dropped off to sleep, he awoke her and begged her to pass into the adjoining room. Then, standing by the side of the bed, he remained for a moment deliberating whether it would be better to awaken Guiche in order to acquaint him with the good news. But as he began to hear behind the door the rustling of silk dresses and the hurried breathing of his two companions, and as he already saw that the curtain screening the doorway seemed on the point of being impatiently drawn aside, he passed round the bed and followed the nurse into the next room. As soon as he had disappeared, the curtain was raised, and his two female companions entered the room he had just left. The one who entered first made a gesture to her companion, which riveted her to the spot where she stood, close to the door, and then resolutely advanced towards the bed, drew back the curtains along the iron rod, and threw them in thick folds behind the head of the bed. She gazed upon the Comte's pallid face, remarked his right hand enveloped in linen, whose dazzling whiteness was emphasized by the counterpane patterned with dark leaves thrown across the couch. She shuddered as she saw a stain of blood growing larger and larger upon the bandages. The young man's breast was uncovered, as though for the cool night air to assist his respiration. A narrow bandage fastened the dressings of the wound, around which a purplish circle of extravasated blood was gradually increasing in size. A deep sigh broke from her lips. She leaned against one of the columns of the bed and gazed, through the apertures in her mask, upon the harrowing spectacle before her. A hoarse, harsh groan passed like a death-rattle through the Comte's clenched teeth. The masked lady seized his left hand, which scorched like burning coals, and at the very moment she placed her icy hand upon it, the action of the cold was such that de Guiche opened his eyes, and by a look in which revived intelligence was dawning, seemed as though struggling back again into existence. The first thing upon which he fixed his gaze was this phantom standing erect by his bedside. At that sight his eyes became dilated, 
but without any appearance of consciousness in them. The lady thereupon made a sign to her companion, who had remained at the door, and in all probability the latter had already received her lesson, for in a clear tone of voice, and without any hesitation whatever, she pronounced these words, Monsieur le Comte, Her Royal Highness Madame is desirous of knowing how you are able to bear your wound, and to express to you, by my lips, her great regret at seeing you suffer. As she pronounced the word Madame, Guiche started. He had not as yet remarked the person to whom the voice belonged, and he naturally turned towards the direction whence it proceeded. But as he felt the cold hand still resting on his own, he again turned towards the motionless figure beside him. "'Was it you who spoke, madame?' he asked in a weak voice. "'Or is there another person in beside you in the room?' "'Yes,' replied the figure in an almost unintelligible voice as she bent down her head. "'Well,' said the wounded man with a great effort, "'I thank you. Tell madame that I no longer regret to die, since she has remembered me.' At the words to die, pronounced by one whose life seemed to hang on a thread, the masked lady could not restrain her tears, which flowed under the mask, and appeared upon her cheek just where the mask left her face bare. If de Guiche had been in fuller possession of his senses, he would have seen her tears roll like glistening pearls and fall upon his bed. The lady, forgetting that she wore a mask, raised her hand as though to wipe her eyes, and meeting the rough velvet, she tore away her mask in anger and threw it on the floor. At the unexpected apparition before him, which seemed to issue from a cloud, De Guiche uttered a cry and stretched his arms toward her, but every word perished on his lips, and his strength seemed utterly abandoning him. His right hand, which had followed his first impulse, without calculating the amount of strength he had left, fell back again upon the bed, and immediately afterwards the white linen was stained with a larger spot than before. In the meantime the young man's eyes became dim and closed, as if he were already struggling with the messenger of death and then, after a few involuntary movements, his head fell back motionless on his pillow. His face grew livid. The lady was frightened, but on this occasion, contrary to what is usually the case, fear attracted. She leaned over the young man, gazed earnestly, fixedly at his pale, cold face, which she almost touched, then imprinted a rapid kiss upon de Guiche's left hand, who, trembling as if an electric shock had passed through him, awoke a second time, opened his large eyes, incapable of recognition, and again fell into a state of complete insensibility. Come, she said to her companion, we must not remain here longer. I shall be committing some folly or other. Madame, Madame, your highness is forgetting your mask, said her vigilant companion. Pick it up, replied her mistress, as she tottered almost senseless towards the staircase, and as the outer door had been left only half closed, the two women, light as birds, passed through it, and with hurried steps returned to the palace. One of them ascended towards Madame's apartments, where she disappeared. The other entered the rooms belonging to the maids of honour, namely, on the entresol, and having reached her own room, she sat down before a table, and without giving herself time even to breathe, wrote the following letter. This evening Madame has been to see Monsieur de Guiche. Everything is going well on this side. See that your news is equally exemplary, and do not forget to burn this paper. She folded the letter, and leaving her room with every possible precaution, crossed a corridor which led to the apartments appropriated to the gentlemen attached to Monsieur's service, 
She stopped before a door, under which, having previously knocked twice in a short, quick manner, she thrust the paper and fled. Then, returning to her own room, she removed every trace of her having gone out, and also of having written the letter. Amid the investigations she was so diligently pursuing, she perceived on the table the mask which belonged to Madame, and which, according to her mistress's directions, she had brought back, but had forgotten to restore to her. Oh, oh, she said, I must not forget to do tomorrow what I have forgotten today. As she took hold of the velvet mask by that part which covered the cheek, and feeling that her thumb was wet, looked at it. It was not only wet, but reddened. The mask had fallen upon one of the spots of blood which, we have already said, stained the floor, and from that black velvet outside which had accidentally come into contact with it, the blood had passed through to the inside and stained the white cambric lining. Oh, oh, said Montalais, for doubtless our readers have already recognized her by these various manoeuvres. I shall not give back this mask. It is far too precious now. And, rising from her seat, she ran towards a box made of maple wood, which enclosed different articles of toilet and perfumery. No, not here, she said. Such a treasure must not be abandoned to the slightest chance of detection. Then, after a moment's silence, and with a smile that was peculiarly her own, she added, Beautiful mask, stained with the blood of that brave knight, you shall go and join that collection of wonders, La Valliere's and Raoul's letters, that loving collection indeed, which will some day or other form part of the history of France, of European royalty. You shall be placed under Monsieur Malicorne's care, said the laughing girl as she began to undress herself. Under the protection of that worthy Monsieur Malicorne, she said, blowing out the taper, who thinks he was born only to become the chief usher of Monsieur's apartments, and whom I will make keeper of the records and historiographer of the House of Bourbon and of the first houses in the kingdom. Let him grumble now, that discontented Malicorne, she added, as she drew the curtains and fell asleep. End of chapter 21「descended the grand staircase with the two queens and madame in order to enter his carriage drawn by six horses that were pawing the ground in impatience at the foot of the staircase the whole court awaited the royal appearance in the Verachaval croissant in their travelling costumes the large number of saddled horses and carriages of ladies and gentlemen of the court surrounded by their attendants servants and pages formed a spectacle whose brilliancy could scarcely be equalled the king entered his carriage with the two queens madame was in the same one with monsieur the maids of honor followed their example and took their seats two by two in the carriages destined for them the weather was exceedingly warm a light breeze which early in the morning all had thought would have proved sufficient to cool the air soon became fiercely heated by the rays of the sun although it was hidden behind the clouds 
and filtered through the heated vapour which rose from the ground like a scorching wind bearing particles of fine dust against the faces of the travellers madame was the first to complain of the heat monsieur's only reply was to throw himself back in the carriage as though about to faint and to inundate himself with scents and perfumes uttering the deepest sighs all the while whereupon madame said to him with her most amiable expression really monsieur i fancied that you would have been polite enough on account of the terrible heat to have left me my carriage to myself and to have performed the journey yourself on horseback ride on horseback cried the prince with an accent of dismay which showed how little idea he had of adopting this unnatural advice you cannot suppose such a thing madame my skin would peel off if i were to expose myself to such a burning breeze as this madame began to laugh you can take my parasol she said but the trouble of holding it replied monsieur with the greatest coolness besides i have no horse what no horse replied the princess who if she did not secure the solitude she required at least obtained the amusement of teasing no horse you are mistaken monsieur for i see your favorite bay out yonder my bay horse exclaimed the prince attempting to lean forward to look out of the door but the movement he was obliged to make cost him so much trouble that he soon hastened to resume his immobility yes said madame your horse led by monsieur de malicorne poor beast replied the prince how warm it must be and with these words he closed his eyes like a man on the point of death madame on her side reclined indolently in the other corner of the carriage and closed her eyes also not however to sleep but to think more at her ease in the meantime the king seated in the front of his carriage the back of which he had yielded up to the two queens was a prey to that feverish contrariety experienced by anxious lovers who without being able to quench their ardent thirst are ceaselessly desirous of seeing the loved object and then go away partially satisfied without perceiving they have acquired a more insatiable thirst than ever the king whose carriage headed the procession could not from the place he occupied perceive the carriages of the ladies and maids of honor which followed in a line behind it besides he was obliged to answer the eternal questions of the young queen who happy to have with her her dear husband as she called him in utter forgetfulness of royal etiquette invested him with all her affection stifled him with her attentions afraid that some one might come to take him from her or that he himself might suddenly take a fancy to quit her society anne of austria whom nothing at that moment occupied except the occasional cruel throbbings in her bosom looked pleased and delighted and although she perfectly realized the king's impatience tantalizingly prolonged his sufferings by unexpectedly resuming the conversation at the very moment the king absorbed in his own reflections began to muse over his secret attachment everything seemed to combine not alone the little teasing attentions of the queen but also the queen-mother's interruptions 
to make the king's position almost insupportable, for he knew not how to control the restless longings of his heart. At first he complained of the heat, a complaint merely preliminary to others, but with sufficient tact to prevent Maria Theresa guessing his real object. Understanding the king's remark literally, she began to fan him with her ostrich plumes, but the heat passed away, and the king then complained of cramps and stiffness in his legs, and as the carriages at that moment stopped to change horses, the queen said, Shall I get out with you? I too feel tired of sitting. We can walk on a little distance. The carriage will overtake us, and we can resume our places presently. The king frowned. It is a hard trial a jealous woman makes her husband submit to, whose fidelity she suspects, when, although herself a prey to jealousy, she watches herself so narrowly that she avoids giving any pretext for an angry feeling. The king, therefore, in the present case, could not refuse. He accepted the offer, alighted from the carriage, gave his arm to the queen, and walked up and down with her, while the horses were being changed. As he walked along, he cast an envious glance upon the, the courtiers, who were fortunate enough to be on horseback. The queen soon found out that the promenade she had suggested afforded the king as little pleasure as he had experienced from driving. She accordingly expressed a wish to return to her carriage, and the king conducted her to the door, but did not get in with her. He stepped back a few paces and looked along the file of carriages for the purpose of recognizing the one in which he took so strong an interest. At the door of the sixth carriage he saw La Valliere's fair countenance, as the king thus stood motionless, wrapped in thought, without perceiving that everything was ready, and that he alone was causing the delay, he heard a voice close beside him, addressing him in the most respectful manner. It was Monsieur Malicorne, in a complete costume of an equerry, holding over his left arm the bridles of a couple of horses. "'Your Majesty asked for a horse, I believe,' he said. "'A horse? Have you one of my horses here?' inquired the king, trying to remember the person who had addressed him, and whose face was not as yet familiar to him. "'Sire,' replied Malicorne, "'in all events I have a horse here which is at Your Majesty's service.' and Malicorne pointed at Monsieur's bay horse, which Madame had observed. It was a beautiful creature, royally caparisoned. "'This is not one of my horses, Monsieur,' said the king. "'Sire, it is a horse out of his royal highness's stables, but he does not ride when the weather is as hot as it is now.' Louis did not reply, but approached the horse, which stood pawing the ground with its foot, Mollicorn hastened to hold the stirrup for him, but the king was already in the saddle. Restored to good humor by this lucky accident, the king hastened toward the queen's carriage, where he was anxiously expected, and, notwithstanding Maria Theresa's thoughtful and preoccupied air, he said, I have been fortunate enough to find this horse, and I intend to avail myself of it. I felt stifled in the carriage. Adieu, ladies then bending gracefully over the arched neck of his beautiful steed he disappeared in a second anne of austria leaned forward in order to look after him as he rode away 
he did not get very far for when he reached the sixth carriage he reined in his horse suddenly and took off his hat he saluted la valliere who uttered a cry of surprise as she saw him blushing at the same time with pleasure montalais who occupied the other seat in the carriage made the king a most respectful bow and then with all the tact of a woman she pretended to be exceedingly interested in the landscape and withdrew herself into the left-hand corner the conversation between the king and la valliere began as all lovers conversations generally do namely by eloquent looks and by a few words utterly devoid of common sense the king explained how warm he had felt in his carriage so much so indeed that he could almost regard the horse he then rode as a blessing thrown in his way and he added my benefactor is an exceedingly intelligent man for he seemed to guess my thoughts intuitively i have now only one wish that of learning the name of the gentleman who so cleverly assisted his king out of his dilemma and extricated him from his cruel position montalais during this colloquy the first words of which had awakened her attention had slightly altered her position and contrived so as to meet the king's look as he finished his remark it followed very naturally that the king looked inquiringly as much at her as at la valliere she had every reason to suppose that it was herself who was appealed to and consequently might be permitted to answer she therefore said sire the horse which your majesty is riding belongs to monsieur and was being led by one of his royal highness's gentlemen and what is that gentleman's name may i ask mademoiselle monsieur de malicorne sire the name produced its usual effect for the king repeated it smilingly yes sire replied ara stay it is the gentleman who is galloping on my left hand and she pointed out malicorne who with a very sanctified expression was galloping by the side of the carriage knowing perfectly well that they were talking of him at that very moment but sitting in his saddle as if he were deaf and dumb yes said the king that is the gentleman i remember his face and will not forget his name said the king looking tenderly at la valliere ara had now nothing further to do she had let malicorne's name fall the soil was good all that was now left to be done was to let the name take root and the event would bear fruit in due season she consequently threw herself back in her corner feeling perfectly justified in making as many agreeable signs of recognition as she liked to malicorne since the latter had had the happiness of pleasing the king as will readily be believed montalais was not mistaken and malicorne with his quick ear and his sly look seemed to interpret her remark as all goes on well the whole being accompanied by a pantomimic action which he fancied conveyed something resembling a kiss alas mademoiselle said the king after a moment's pause the liberty and freedom of the country is soon about to cease your attendance on madame will be more strictly enforced and we shall see each other no more your majesty is too much attached to madame replied louisa not to come and see her very frequently and whenever your majesty may chance to pass across the apartment ah said the king in a tender voice 
which was gradually lowered in its tone to perceive is not to see and yet it seems that it would be quite sufficient for you louisa did not answer a syllable a sigh filled her heart almost to bursting but she stifled it you exercise a great control over yourself said the king to louisa who smiled upon him with a melancholy expression exert the strength you have in loving fondly he continued and i will bless heaven for having bestowed it on you la valliere still remained silent but raised her eyes brimful of affection toward the king louis as if overcome by this burning glance passed his hand across his forehead and pressing the sides of his horse with his knees made him bound several paces forward la valliere leaning back in her carriage with her eyes half closed gazed fixedly upon the king whose plumes were floating in the air she could not but admire his graceful carriage his delicate and nervous limbs which pressed his horse's sides and the regular outline of his features which his beautiful curling hair set off to great advantage revealing occasionally his small and well-formed ear in fact the poor girl was in love and she revelled in her innocent affection in a few moments the king was again by her side did you not perceive he said how terribly your silence affects me oh mademoiselle how pitilessly inexorable you would become if you would ever to resolve to break off all acquaintance with any one and then too i think you changeable in fact in fact i dread this deep affection which fills my whole being oh sire you are mistaken said la valliere if ever i love it will be for all my life if you love you say exclaimed the king you do not love now then she hid her face in her hands you see said the king that i am right in accusing you you must admit you are changeable capricious a coquette perhaps oh no sire be perfectly satisfied as to that no i say again no no promise me then that to me you will always be the same oh always sire that you will never show any of that severity which would break my heart none of that fickleness of manner which would be worse than death to me oh no no very well then but listen i like promises i like to place under the guarantee of an oath under the protection of heaven in fact everything which interests my heart and my affections promise me or rather swear to me that if in the life we are about to commence a life which will be full of sacrifice mystery anxiety disappointment and misunderstanding swear to me that if we should in any way deceive or misunderstand each other or should judge each other unjustly for that indeed would be criminal in love such as ours swear to me louisa she trembled with agitation to the very depths of her heart it was the first time she had heard her name pronounced in that manner by her royal lover as for the king taking off his glove and placing his hand within the carriage he continued swear that never in all our quarrels will we allow one night even to pass by if any misunderstanding should arise between us without a visit or at least a message 
from either in order to convey consolation and repose to the other. La Valliere took her lover's burning hand between her own cool palms and pressed it softly, until a movement of the horse, frightened by the proximity of the wheels, obliged her to abandon her happiness. She had vowed as he desired. Return, sire, she said, return to the queen. I foresee a storm yonder, which threatens my peace of mind and yours. Louis obeyed, saluted Mademoiselle de Montalais, and set off at a gallop to rejoin the queen. As he passed Monsieur's carriage, he observed that he was fast asleep, although Madame, on her part, was wide awake. As the king passed her, she said, What a beautiful horse, sire! Is it not Monsieur's bay horse? The young queen kindly asked, Are you better now, sire? End of chapter 22 Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah Chapter Twenty Three of Louisa de la Valliere. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines. Louisa de la Valliere by Alexander Dumas. Chapter Twenty Three. Triumphemate. On the king's arrival in Paris, he sat at the council which had been summoned and worked for a certain portion of the day. The queen remained with the queen-mother, and burst into tears as soon as she had taken leave of the king. "'Ah, madame,' she said, "'the king no longer loves me. What will become of me?' "'A husband always loves his wife when she is like you,' replied Anne of Austria. "'A time may come when he will love another woman instead of me. What do you call loving?' "'Always thinking of a person.' always seeking her society do you happen to have remarked said anne of austria that the king has ever done anything of the sort no madame said the young queen hesitatingly what is there to complain of then marie you will admit that the king leaves me the king my daughter belongs to his people and that is the very reason why he no longer belongs to me and that is the reason, too, why I shall find myself, as so many queens before me, forsaken and forgotten, whilst glory and honor will be reserved for others. Oh, my mother, the king is so handsome! How often will others tell him that they love him, and how much, indeed, they must do so! It is very seldom, indeed, that women love the man in loving the king, but if such a thing happened which i doubt you would be better to wish marie that such women should really love your husband in the first place the devoted love of a mistress is a rapid element of the dissolution of a lover's affection and then by dint of loving the mistress loses all influence over her lover whose power of wealth she does not covet caring only for his affection wish therefore that the king should love but lightly and that his mistress should love with all her heart oh my mother what power may not a deep affection exercise over him and yet you say you are resigned quite true quite true i speak absurdly there is a feeling of anguish however which i can never control and that is the king may make a happy choice may find a home with all the tender influences of home 
not far from that we can offer him a home with children round him the children of another woman oh madame i should die if i were but to see the king's children marie marie replied the queen-mother with a smile and she took the young queen's hand in her own remember what i am going to say and let it always be a consolation to you the king cannot have a dauphin without you with this remark the queen-mother quitted her daughter-in-law in order to meet madame whose arrival in the grand cabinet had just been announced by one of the pages madame had scarcely taken time to change her dress her face revealed her agitation which betrayed a plan the execution of which occupied while the result disturbed her mind i came to ascertain she said if your majesties are suffering any fatigue from our journey not at all said the queen-mother a little replied maria theresa i have suffered from annoyance more than anything else said madame how was that inquired anne of austria the fatigue the king undergoes in riding about on horseback that does the king good and it was i who advised him said maria theresa turning pale madame said not a word in reply but one of those smiles which were peculiarly her own flitted for a moment across her lips without passing over the rest of her face then immediately changing the conversation she continued we shall find paris precisely the paris we quitted the same intrigues plots and flirtations going on intrigues what intrigues do you allude to inquired the queen-mother people are talking a good deal about monsieur fouquet and madame Plessy Bellere, who makes up the number to about ten thousand replied the queen-mother but what are the plots you speak of we have it seems certain misunderstandings with holland to settle what about monsieur has been telling me the story of the medals oh exclaimed the young queen you mean those medals struck in holland on which a cloud is seen passing across the sun which is the king's device you are wrong in calling that a plot it is an insult but so contemptible that the king can well despise it replied the queen-mother well what are the flirtations which are alluded to do you mean that of madame de Lone? no no nearer ourselves than that casa de usted murmured the queen-mother and without moving her lips in her daughter-in-law's ear without being overheard by madame who thus continued you know the terrible news oh yes monsieur de guiche's wound and you attribute it i suppose as every one else does to an accident which happened to him while hunting yes of course said both the queens together their interest awakened madame drew closer to them as she said in a low tone of voice it was a duel ah said anne of austria in a severe tone for in her ears the word duel which had been forbidden in france all the time she reigned over it had a strange sound a most deplorable duel which has nearly cost monsieur two of his best friends and the king two of his best servants what was the cause of the duel inquired the young queen animated by a secret instinct flirtation repeated madame triumphantly the gentlemen in question were conversing about the virtue of a particular lady belonging to the court 
one of them thought that Pelet was a very second-rate person compared to her the other pretended that the lady in question was an imitation of venus alluring mars and thereupon the two gentlemen fought as fiercely as hector and achilles venus alluring mars said the young queen in a low tone of voice without venturing to examine into the allegory very deeply who is the lady inquired anne of austria abruptly you said i believe she was one of the ladies of honor did i say so replied madame yes at least i thought i heard you mention it are you not aware that such a woman is of ill omen to a royal house is it not mademoiselle de la valliere said the queen-mother yes indeed that plain-looking creature i thought she was affianced to a gentleman who certainly is not at least so i have heard either monsieur de guiche or monsieur de war very possibly madame the young queen took up a piece of tapestry and began to broider with an affectation of tranquillity her trembling fingers contradicted what were you saying about venus and mars pursued the queen-mother is there a mars also she boasts of that being the case did you say she boasts of it that was the cause of the duel and monsieur de guiche upheld the cause of mars yes certainly like the devoted servant he is the devoted servant of whom exclaimed the young queen forgetting her reserve in allowing her jealous feeling to escape mars not to be defended except at the expense of venus replied madame monsieur de guiche maintained the perfect innocence of mars and no doubt affirmed that it was all a mere boast and monsieur de Wat, said anne of austria quietly spread the report that venus was within her rights i suppose oh de wives thought madame you shall pay dearly for the wound you have given that noblest best of men and she began to attack de wives with the greatest bitterness thus discharging her own and de guiche's debt with the assurance that she was working the future ruin of her enemy she said so much in fact that had monacomp been there he would have regretted he had shown such firm regard for his friend inasmuch as it resulted in the ruin of his unfortunate foe i see nothing in the whole affair but one cause of mischief and that is la valliere herself said the queen-mother the young queen resumed her work with perfect indifference of manner while madame listened eagerly i do not yet quite understand what you said just now about the danger of coquetry resumed anne of austria it is quite true madame hastened to say that if the girl had not been a coquette mars would not have thought at all about her the repetition of this word mars brought a passing color to the queen's face but she still continued her work i will not permit that in my court gentlemen should be set against each other in this manner said anne of austria calmly such manners were useful enough perhaps in days when the divided nobility had no other rallying point than mere gallantry at that time women whose sway was absolute and undivided were privileged to encourage men's valor by frequent trials of their courage but now thank heaven there is but one master in france and to him every instinct of the mind every pulse of the body are due i will not allow my son to be deprived of any single one of his servants and she turned towards the young queen saying what is to be done with this la valliere 
la valliere said the queen apparently surprised i do not even know the name and she accompanied this remark by one of those cold fixed smiles only to be observed on royal lips madame was herself a princess great in every respect great in intelligence great by birth by pride the queen's reply however completely astonished her and she was obliged to pause for a moment in order to recover herself she is one of my maids of honor she replied with a bow in that case retorted maria theresa in the same tone it is your affair my sister and not ours i beg your pardon resumed anne of austria it is my affair and i perfectly well understand she pursued addressing a look full of intelligence at madame madame's motive for saying what she has just said everything which emanates from you madame said the english princess proceeds from the lips of wisdom if we send this girl back to her own family said maria theresa gently we must bestow a pension upon her which i will provide for out of my income exclaimed madame no no interrupted anne of austria no disturbance i beg the king dislikes that the slightest disrespectful remark should be made of any lady let everything be done quietly will you have the kindness madame to send for this girl here and you my daughter will have the goodness to retire to your own room the dowager queen's entreaties were commands and as maria theresa rose to return to her apartments madame rose in order to send a page to summon la valliere end of chapter twenty three recording by dion gines salt lake city utah chapter twenty four of louisa de la valliere this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines. Louisa de la Valliere by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter 24. The First Quarrel. La Valliere entered the Queen Mother's apartments without in the least suspecting that a serious plot was being concerted against her. She thought it was for something connected with her duties, and never had the Queen Mother been unkind to her when such was the case besides not being immediately under the control or direction of anne of austria she could only have an official connection with her to which her own gentleness of disposition and the rank of the august princess made her yield on every occasion with the best possible grace she therefore advanced towards the queen-mother with that soft and gentle smile which constituted her principal charm and as she did not approach sufficiently close anne of austria signed to her to come nearer madame then entered the room and with a perfectly calm air took her seat beside her mother-in-law and continued the work which maria theresa had begun when la valliere instead of the direction which she expected to receive immediately on entering the room perceived these preparations she looked with curiosity if not with uneasiness at the two princesses and seemed full of thought while madame maintained an affectation of indifference that would have alarmed a less timid person even than louisa mademoiselle said the queen-mother suddenly without attempting to moderate or disguise her spanish accent which she never failed to do except when she was angry come closer we were talking of you as every one else seems to be doing 
of me exclaimed la valliere turning pale do you pretend to be ignorant of it are you not aware of the duel between monsieur de guiche and monsieur de wardes oh madame i heard of it yesterday said la valliere clasping her hands together and you did not foresee this quarrel why should i madame because two men never fight without a motive and because you must be aware of the motive which awakened the animosity of the two in question i am perfectly ignorant of it madame a persevering denial is a very commonplace mode of defence and you who have great pretensions to be witty and clever ought to avoid commonplaces what else have you to say oh madame your majesty terrifies me with your cold severity of manner but i do not understand how i can have occurred your displeasure or in what respect people concern themselves about me then i will tell you monsieur de guiche has been obliged to undertake your defence my defence yes he is a gallant knight and beautiful adventuresses like to see such brave knights couch lances in their honour but for my part i hate fields of battle and above all i hate adventures and take my remark as you please la valliere sank at the queen's feet who turned her back upon her she stretched out her hands toward madame who laughed in her face a feeling of pride made her rise to her feet i have begged your majesty to tell me what is the crime i am accused of i can claim this at your hands and i see i am condemned before i am even permitted to justify myself ah indeed cried anne of austria listen to her beautiful phrases madame and to her fine sentiments she is an inexhaustible well of tenderness and heroic expressions one can easily see young lady that you have cultivated your mind in the society of crowned heads la valliere felt struck to the heart she became not whiter but as white as a lily and all her strength forsook her i wish to inform you interrupted the queen disdainfully that if you continue to nourish such feelings you will humiliate us to such a degree that we shall be ashamed of appearing before you be simple in your manners by the by i am informed that you are affianced is it the case la valliere pressed her hand over her heart which was wrung with a fresh pang answer when you are spoken to yes madame to a gentleman yes madame his name the vicomte de bragelonne are you aware that it is an exceedingly fortunate circumstance for you mademoiselle that such is the case and without fortune or position as you are or without any very great personal advantages you ought to bless heaven for having procured you such a future as seems to be in store for you la valliere did not reply where is the vicomte de bragelonne pursued the queen in england said madame where the report of this young lady's success will not fail to reach him oh heaven murmured la valliere in despair very well mademoiselle said anne of austria we will get this young gentleman to return and send you away somewhere with him if you are of a different opinion for girls have strange views and fancies at times trust to me i will put you in a proper path again i have done as much for girls who are not as good as you are probably la valliere ceased to hear the queen who pitilessly added i will send you somewhere by yourself where you will be able to indulge in a little serious reflection 
reflection calms the ardor of the blood and swallows up the illusions of youth i suppose you understand what i have been saying madame not a word i am innocent of everything your majesty supposes oh madame you are a witness of my despair i love i respect your majesty so much it would be far better not to respect me at all said the queen with a chilling irony of manner it would be far better if you were not innocent do you presume to suppose that i should be satisfied simply to leave you unpunished if you had committed the fault oh madame you are killing me no acting if you please or i will precipitate the denouement of this play leave the room return to your own apartment and i trust my lesson may be of service to you madame said la valliere to the duchess of d'orleans whose hand she seized in her own do you who are so good intercede for me i replied the latter with an insulting joy i good ah oh, mademoiselle you think nothing of the kind and with a rude hasty gesture she repulsed the young girl's grasp la valliere instead of giving away as from her extreme pallor and her tears the two princesses possibly expected suddenly resumed her calm and dignified air she bowed profoundly and left the room well said anne of austria to madame do you think she will begin again i always suspect those gentle patient characters replied madame nothing is more full of courage than a patient heart nothing more self-reliant than a gentle spirit i feel i may almost venture to assure you she will think twice before she looks at the god mars again so long as she does not obtain the protection of his buckler i do not care retorted madame a proud defiant look of the queen mother was the reply to this objection which was by no means deficient in finesse and both of them almost sure of their victory went to look for maria theresa who had been waiting for them with impatience it was about half-past six in the evening and the king had just partaken of refreshment he lost no time but the repast finished and the business matters settled he took saint Agnew by the arm and desired him to lead the way to la valliere's apartments the courtier uttered an exclamation well what is that for it is a habit you will have to adopt and in order to adopt a habit one must make a beginning oh sire said saint Agnew, it is hardly possible for every one can be seen entering or leaving those apartments if however some pretext or other were made use of if your majesty for instance would wait until madame were in her own apartments no pretext no delays i have had enough of these impediments and mysteries i cannot perceive in what respect the king of france dishonors himself by conversing with an amiable and clever girl evil be to him who evil thinks will your majesty forgive an excess of zeal on my part speak freely how about the queen true true i always wish the most entire respect to be shown to her majesty well then this evening only will i pay mademoiselle de la valliere a visit and after to-day i will make use of any pretext you like to-morrow we will devise all sorts of means to-night i have no time saint Agno made no reply he descended the steps preceding the king and crossed the different courtyards with a feeling of shame which the distinguished honor of accompanying the king did not remove the reason was that saint Agno wished to stand well with madame as well as with the queens and also 
that he did not on the other hand want to displease mademoiselle de la valliere and in order to carry out so many promising affairs it was difficult to avoid jostling against some obstacle or other besides the windows of the young queen's rooms those of the queen mother's and of madame herself looked out upon the courtyard of the maids of honor to be seen therefore accompanying the king would be effectually to quarrel with three great and influential princesses whose authority was unbounded for the purpose of supporting the ephemeral credit of a mistress the unhappy saint aignan who had not displayed a very great amount of courage in taking la valliere's part in the park of fontainebleau did not feel any braver in the broad daylight and found a thousand defects in the poor girl which he was most eager to communicate to the king but his trial soon finished the courtyards were crossed not a curtain was drawn aside nor a window opened the king walked hastily because of his impatience and the long legs of saint aignan who preceded him at the door however saint aignan wished to retire but the king desired him to remain a delicate consideration on the king's part which the courtier could very well have dispensed with he had to follow louis into la valliere's apartment as soon as the king arrived the young girl dried her tears but so precipitately that the king perceived it he questioned her most anxiously and tenderly and pressed her to tell him the cause of her emotion nothing is the matter sire she said and yet you were weeping oh no indeed sire look saint aignan and tell me if i am mistaken saint aignan ought to have answered but he was too much embarrassed at all events your eyes are red mademoiselle said the king the dust of the road merely sire no no you no longer possess the air of supreme contentment which renders you so beautiful and so attractive you do not look at me why avoid my gaze he said as she turned aside her head in heaven's name what is the matter he inquired beginning to lose command over himself nothing at all sire and i am perfectly ready to assure your majesty that my mind is as free from anxiety as you could possibly wish your mind at ease when i see you are embarrassed at the slightest thing has any one annoyed you no no sire i insist upon knowing if such really be the case said the prince his eyes sparkling no one sire no one has in any way offended me in that case pray resume your gentle air of gaiety or that sweet melancholy look which i so loved in you this morning for pity's sake do so yes sire yes the king tapped the floor impatiently with his foot saying such a change is positively inexplicable and he looked at saint aignan who had also remarked la valliere's particular lethargy as well as the king's impatience it was futile for the king to entreat and as useless for him to try to overcome her depression the poor girl was completely overwhelmed the appearance of an angel would hardly have awakened her from her torpor the king saw in her repeated negative replies a mystery full of unkindness he began to look around the apartment with a suspicious air there happened to be in la valliere's room a miniature of athos the king remarked that this portrait bore a strong resemblance to bragelonne for it had been taken when the count was quite a young man he looked at it with a threatening air la valliere in her misery far indeed from thinking of this portrait could not conjecture the cause of the king's preoccupation 
and yet the king's mind was occupied with a terrible remembrance which had more than once taken possession of his mind but which he had always driven away he recalled the intimacy existing between the two young people from their birth their engagement and that athos himself had come to solicit la valliere's hand for raoul he therefore could not but suppose that on her return to paris la valliere had found news from london awaiting her and that this news had counterbalanced the influence he had been enabled to exert over her he immediately felt himself stung as it were by feelings of the wildest jealousy and again questioned her with increased bitterness la valliere could not reply unless she were to acknowledge everything which would be to accuse the queen and madame also and the consequence would be that she would have to enter into an open warfare with these two great and powerful princesses she thought within herself that as she made no attempt to conceal from the king what was passing in her own mind the king ought to be able to read in her heart in spite of her silence and that had he really loved her he would have understood and guessed everything what was sympathy then if not that divine flame which possesses the property of enlightening the heart and of saving lovers the necessity of an expression of their thoughts and feelings she maintained her silence therefore sighing and concealing her face in her hands these sighs and tears which had at first distressed then terrified louis the fourteenth now irritated him he could not bear opposition the opposition which tears and sighs exhibited any more than opposition of any other kind his remarks therefore became bitter urgent and openly aggressive in their nature this was a fresh cause of distress for the poor girl from that very circumstance therefore which she regarded as an injustice on her lover's part she drew sufficient courage to bear not only her other troubles but this one also the king next began to accuse her in direct terms la valliere did not even attempt to defend herself she endured all his accusations without according any other reply than that of shaking her head without any other remark than that which escapes the heart in deep distress a prayerful appeal to heaven for help but this ejaculation instead of calming the king's displeasure rather increased it he moreover saw himself seconded by saint agno for saint agno as we have observed having seen the storm increasing and not knowing the extent of the regard of which louis the fourteenth was capable felt by anticipation all the collected wrath of the three princesses and the near approach of poor la valliere's downfall and he was not true knight enough to resist the fear that he himself might be dragged down in the impending ruin saint agno did not reply to the king's questions except by short dry remarks pronounced half aloud and by abrupt gestures whose object was to make things worse and bring about a misunderstanding the result of which would be to free him from the annoyance of having to cross the courtyards in open day in order to follow his illustrious companion to la valliere's apartments in the meantime the king's anger momentarily increased he made two or three steps towards the door as if to leave the room but returned the young girl did not however raise her head although the sound of his footsteps might have warned her that her lover was leaving her he drew himself up for a moment before her with his arms crossed for the last time mademoiselle he said will you speak will you assign a reason for this change this fickleness for this caprice 
"'What can I say?' murmured La Valliere. "'Do you not see, sire, that I am completely overwhelmed at this moment, "'that I have no power of will, or thought, or speech? "'Is it so difficult, then, to speak the truth? "'You could have told me the whole truth in fewer words "'than those in which you have expressed yourself.' "'But the truth about what, sire?' "'About everything.' "'La Valliere was just on the point of revealing the truth to the king. "'Her arms made a sudden movement as if they were about to open.' but her lips remained silent, and her hands again fell listlessly by her side. The young girl had not yet endured sufficient unhappiness to risk the necessary revelation. "'I know nothing,' she stammered out. "'Oh!' exclaimed the king. "'This is no longer mere coquetry or caprice. It is treason.' And this time nothing could restrain him. The impulse of his heart was not sufficient to induce him to turn back and he darted out of the room with a gesture full of despair. St. Agno followed him, wishing for nothing better than to quit the place. Louis the Fourteenth did not pause until he reached the staircase, and grasping the balustrade, said, "'You see how shamefully I have been duped?' "'How, sire?' inquired the favorite. De Guiche fought on the Vicomte de Bragelonne's account, and this Bragelonne, oh! St. Agno, she still loves him. I vow to you, St. Agno, that if, in three days from now, there were to remain but an atom of, of affection for her in my heart, I should die from very shame. And the king resumed his way to his own apartments. I told your majesty how it would be, murmured St. Agno, continuing to follow the king, and timidly glancing up at the different windows. Unfortunately, their return was not, like their arrival, unobserved. A curtain was suddenly drawn aside. Madame was behind it she had seen the king leave the apartments of the maids of honor and as soon as she observed that his majesty had passed she left her own apartments with hurried steps and ran up the staircase that led to the room the king had just left End of chapter twenty four recording by dion Drynes, salt lake city utah chapter twenty five of louisa de la valliera this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines. Louisa de la Valliera by Alexander Dumas. Chapter 25. Despair. As soon as the king was gone, la Valliera raised herself from the ground and stretched out her arms as if to follow and detain him but when, having violently closed the door, the sound of his retreating footsteps could be heard in the distance, she had hardly sufficient strength left to totter towards and fall at the foot of her crucifix. There she remained, broken-hearted, absorbed, and overwhelmed by her grief, forgetful and indifferent to everything but her profound sorrow, a grief she only vaguely realized, as though by instinct. In the midst of this wild tumult of thought, La Valliere heard her door open again. She started and turned round, thinking it was the king who had returned. She was deceived, however, for it was Madame who had appeared at the door. What did she now care for Madame? Again she sank down, her head supported by her prédu chair. It was Madame, agitated, angry, and threatening. But what was that to her? mademoiselle said the princess standing before la valliere this is very fine i admit to kneel and pray and make a pretence of being religious but however submissive you may be in your address to heaven 
it is desirable that you should pay some little attention to the wishes of those who reign and rule here below. La Valliere raised her head painfully in token of respect. Not long since, continued Madame, a certain recommendation was addressed to you, I believe. La Valliere's fixed and wild gaze showed how complete her forgetfulness or ignorance was. The queen recommended you, continued Madame, to conduct yourself in such a manner that no one could be justified in spreading any reports about you. La Valliere darted an inquiring look towards her. I will not, continued Madame, allow my household, which is that of the first princess of the blood, to set an evil example to the court. You would be the cause of such an example. I beg you to understand, therefore, in the absence of any witness of your shame, for I do not wish to humiliate you, that you are from this moment at perfect liberty to leave, and that you can return to your mother at Blois. La Valliere could not sink lower, nor could she suffer more than she had already suffered. Her countenance did not even change, but she remained kneeling with her hands clasped, like the figure of the Magdalene. Did you hear me? said Madame. A shiver, which passed through her whole frame, was La Valliere's only reply and as the victim gave no other signs of life madame left the room and then her very respiration suspended and her blood almost congealed as it were in her veins la valliere by degrees felt that the pulsation of her wrists her neck and temples began to throb more and more painfully these pulsations as they gradually increased soon changed into a species of brain fever and in her temporary delirium she saw the figures of her friends contending with her enemies, floating before her vision. She heard, too, mingled together in her deafened ears, words of menace and words of fond affection. She seemed raised out of her existence as though it were upon the wings of a mighty tempest, and in the dim horizons of the path along which her delirium hurried her, she saw the stone which covered her tomb upraised, and the grim, appalling texture of eternal night revealed to her distracted gaze but the horror of the dream which possessed her senses faded away and she was again restored to the habitual resignation of her character a ray of hope penetrated her heart as a ray of sunlight streams into the dungeon of some unhappy captive her mind reverted to the journey from fontainebleau she saw the king riding beside her carriage telling her that he loved her asking for her love in return requiring her to swear and himself to swear too that never should an evening pass by if ever a misunderstanding were to arise between them without a visit a letter a sign of some kind being sent to replace the troubled anxiety of the evening with the calm repose of the night it was the king who had suggested that who had imposed a promise on her and who had sworn it to himself it was impossible therefore she reasoned that the king should fail in keeping the promise which he had himself exacted from her unless indeed louis was a despot who enforced love as he enforced obedience unless too the king were so indifferent that the first obstacle in his way was sufficient to arrest his further progress the king that kind protector who by a word a single word could relieve her distress of mind the king even joined her persecutors oh his anger could not possibly last now that he was alone he would be suffering all that she herself was a prey to but he was not tied hand and foot as she was he could act could move about could come to her 
while she could do nothing but wait and the poor girl waited and waited with breathless anxiety for she could not believe it possible that the king would not come it was now about half-past ten he would either come to her or write to her or send some kind word by m de saint aignan if he were to come oh how she would fly to meet him how she would thrust aside that excess of delicacy which she now discovered was misunderstood how eagerly she would explain it is not i who do not love you it is the fault of others who will not allow me to love you and then it must be confessed that she reflected upon it and also the more she reflected louis appeared to her to be less guilty in fact he was ignorant of everything what must he have thought of the obstinacy with which she remained silent impatient and irritable as the king was known to be it was extraordinary that he had been able to preserve his temper so long and yet had it been her own case she undoubtedly would not have acted in such a manner she would have understood have guessed everything yes but she was nothing but a poor simple-minded girl and not a great and powerful monarch oh if he would but come if he would but come how eagerly she would forgive him for all he had just made her suffer how much more tenderly she would love him because she had so cruelly suffered and so she sat with her head bent forward in eager expectation towards the door her lips slightly parted as if and heaven forgive her for the mental exclamation they were awaiting the kiss which the king's lips had in the morning so sweetly indicated when he pronounced the word love if the king did not come at least he would write it was a second chance a chance less delightful certainly than the other but which would show an affection just as strong only more timid in its nature oh how she would devour his letter how eager she would be to answer it and when the messenger who had brought it had left her how she would kiss it read it over and over again press to her heart the lucky paper which would have brought her peace of mind tranquillity and perfect happiness at all events if the king did not come if the king did not write he could not do otherwise than send saint Agno, or saint Agno could not do otherwise than come of his own accord even if it were a third person how openly she would speak to him the royal presence would not be there to freeze her words upon her tongue and then no suspicious feeling would remain a moment longer in the king's heart everything with la valliere heart and look body and mind was concentrated in eager expectation she said to herself that there was an hour left in which to indulge hope that until midnight struck the king might come or write or send that at midnight only would every expectation vanish every hope be lost whenever she heard any stir in the palace the poor girl fancied she was the cause of it whenever she heard any one pass in the courtyard below she imagined they were messengers of the king coming to her eleven o'clock struck then a quarter past eleven then half past the minutes dragged slowly on in this anxiety and yet they seemed to pass too quickly and now it struck a quarter to twelve midnight midnight was near the last the final hope that remained with the last stroke of the clock the last ray of light seemed to fade away and with the last ray faded her final hope and so the king himself had deceived her it was he who had been the first to fail in keeping the oath which he had sworn that very day twelve hours only between his oath and his perjured vow it was not long alas to have preserved the illusion 
And so, not only did the king not love her, but he despised her whom everyone ill-treated. He despised her to the extent even of abandoning her to the shame of an expulsion which was equivalent to having an ignominious sentence passed on her. And yet it was he, the king himself, who was the first cause of this ignominy. A bitter smile, the only symptom of anger which during this long conflict had passed across the angelic face, appeared upon her lips. What, in fact, now remained on earth for her, after the king was lost to her? Nothing. But heaven still remained, and her thoughts flew thither. She prayed that the proper course for her to follow might be suggested. It is from heaven, she thought, that I expect everything. It is from heaven I ought to expect everything. And she looked at her crucifix with a devotion full of tender love. There, she said, hangs before me a master who never forgets, and never abandons those who neither forget nor abandon him. It is to him alone that we must sacrifice ourselves. And thereupon, could any one have gazed into the recesses of that chamber, they would have seen the poor despairing girl adopt a final resolution, and determine upon one last plan in her mind. Then, as her knees were no longer able to support her, she gradually sank down upon the prie and with her head pressed against the wooden cross, her eyes fixed, and her respiration short and quick. She watched for the earliest rays of approaching daylight. At two o'clock in the morning she was still in the same bewilderment of mind, or rather the same ecstasy of feeling. Her thoughts had almost ceased to hold a communion with things of the world, and when she saw the pale violet tints of early dawn visible over the roofs of the palace, and vaguely revealing the outlines of the ivory crucifix which she held embraced, she rose from the ground with a newborn strength, kissed the feet of the divine martyr, descended the staircase leading from the room, and wrapped herself from head to foot in a mantle as she went along. She reached the wicket at the very moment the guard of the musketeers opened the gate to admit the first relief guard belonging to one of the Swiss regiments, and then, gliding behind the soldiers, she reached the street before the officer in command of the patrol had even thought of asking who the young girl was who was making her escape from the palace at so early an hour. End of chapter 25 Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah Chapter 26 of Louise de la Vallière This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Louise de la Vallière by Alexandre Dumas Chapter 26 The Flight La Vallière followed the patrol as it left the courtyard. The patrol bent its steps towards the right, by the Rue Saint-Honoré, and mechanically La Vallière turned to the left. Her resolution was taken, her determination fixed. She wished to betake herself to the convent of the Carmelites at Chaillot, the superior of which enjoyed a reputation for severity, which made the worldly-minded people of the court tremble. La Vallière had never seen Paris. She had never gone out on foot, and so would have been unable to find her way, even had she been in a calmer frame of mind than was then the case. And this may explain why she ascended, instead of descending, the Rue Saint-Honoré. 
Her only thought was to get away from the Palais Royal, and this she was doing. She had heard it said that Chaillot looked out upon the Seine, and she accordingly directed her steps towards the Seine. She took the Rue de Coq, and not being able to cross the Louvre, bore towards the church of Saint-Germain-Loxirois, proceeding along the site of the colonnade, which was subsequently built there by Perrault. In a very short time she reached the quays. Her steps were rapid and agitated. She scarcely felt the weakness which reminded her of having sprained her foot when very young, and which obliged her to limp slightly. At any other hour in the day her countenance would have awakened the suspicions of the least clear-sighted, attracted the attention of the most indifferent. But at half-past two in the morning the streets of Paris are almost, if not quite, deserted, and scarcely is any one to be seen but the hard-working artisan on his way to earn his daily bread, or the roistering idlers of the streets, who are returning to their homes after a night of riot and debauchery. For the former the day was beginning, and for the latter it was just closing. La Vallière was afraid of both faces, in which her ignorance of Parisian types did not permit her to distinguish the type of probity from that of dishonesty. The appearance of misery alarmed her, and all she met seemed either vile or miserable. Her dress, which was the same she had worn during the previous evening, was elegant even in its careless disorder, for it was the one in which she had presented herself to the Queen Mother, and moreover, when she drew aside the mantle which covered her face in order to enable her to see the way she was going, her pallor and her beautiful eyes spoke an unknown language to the men she met. And unconsciously the poor fugitive seemed to invite the brutal remarks of the one class, or to appeal to the compassion of the other. La Vallière still walked on in the same way, breathless and hurried, until she reached the top of the Place de Grève. She stopped from time to time, placed her hand upon her heart, leaned against a wall until she could breathe freely again, and then continued on her course more rapidly than before. On reaching the Place de Grève, La Vallière suddenly came upon a group of three drunken men, reeling and staggering along, who were just leaving a boat which they had made fast to the quay. The boat was freighted with wines, and it was apparent that they had done ample justice to the merchandise. They were celebrating their convivial exploits in three different quays, when suddenly, as they reached the end of the railing leading down to the quay, they found an obstacle in their path, in the shape of this young girl. La Vallière stopped, while they, on their part, at the appearance of the young girl dressed in court costume, also halted, and seizing each other by the hand, they surrounded La Vallière, singing, O oh, all ye weary whites who mope alone, come drink and sing and laugh round Venus's throne. La Vallière at once understood that the men were insulting her and wished to prevent her passing. She tried to do so several times, but her efforts were useless. 
Her limbs failed her. She felt she was on the point of falling, and uttered a cry of terror. At the same moment, the circle which surrounded her was suddenly broken through, in a most violent manner. One of her insulters was knocked to the left, another fell rolling over and over to the right, close to the water's edge, while the third could hardly keep his feet. An officer of the musketeers stood face to face with the young girl, with threatening brow and hand raised to carry out his threat. The drunken fellows, at the sight of the uniform, made their escape with what speed their staggering limbs could lend them, all the more eagerly for the proof of strength which the wearer of the uniform had just afforded them. "'Is it possible?' exclaimed the musketeer. "'that it can be Mademoiselle de la Vallière?' La Vallière, bewildered by what had just happened, and confounded by hearing her name pronounced, looked up and recognised D'Artagnan. "'Oh, Monsieur D'Artagnan! It is indeed I!' And at the same moment she seized his arm. "'You will protect me, will you not?' she added in a tone of entreaty. "'Most certainly I will protect you. "'But in heaven's name, where are you going at this hour?' "'I am going to Chaillot.' "'You are going to Chaillot, by way of La Rappée. "'Why, mademoiselle, you are turning your back upon it.' "'In that case, monsieur, be kind enough to put me in the right way, "'and to go with me a short distance.' "'Most willingly.' "'But how does it happen that I have found you here? "'By what merciful intervention were you sent to my assistance? "'I almost seem to be dreaming, or to be losing my senses.' "'I happen to be here, mademoiselle, "'because I have a house in the Place de Greve, "'at the sign of the Notre-Dame, "'the rent of which I went to receive yesterday, "'and where I, in fact, passed the night.' and I also wish to be at the palace early, for the purposes of inspecting my posts. "'Thank you,' said La Valliere. "'That is what I was doing,' said D'Artagnan to himself. "'But what is she doing? And why is she going to Chaillot at such an hour?' And he offered her his arm, which she took, and began to walk with increased precipitation, which ill-concealed, however, her weakness. D'Artagnan perceived it, and proposed to La Valliere that she should take a little rest, which she refused. "'You are ignorant, perhaps, where Chaillot is?' inquired D'Artagnan. "'Quite so.' "'It is a great distance.' "'That matters very little.' "'It is at least a league.' "'I can walk it.' D'Artagnan did not reply. He could tell, merely by the tone of a voice, when a resolution was real or not. He rather bore along than accompanied La Valliere, until they perceived the elevated ground of Chaillot. "'What house are you going to, mademoiselle?' inquired D'Artagnan. "'To the Carmelites, monsieur.' "'To the Carmelites?' repeated D'Artagnan, in amazement. 
"'Yes. And since heaven has directed you towards me to give me your support on my road, accept both my thanks and my adieu.' "'To the Carmelites! Your adieu! Are you going to become a nun?' exclaimed D'Artagnan. "'Yes, monsieur.' "'What? You?' There was in this you, which we have marked by three notes of exclamation, in order to render it as expressive as possible, there was, we repeat, in this you, a complete poem. It recalled to La Valliere her old recollections of Blois, and her new recollections of Fontainebleau. It said to her, "'You, who might be happy with Raoul! You, who might be powerful with Louis! You, about to become a nun!' "'Yes, monsieur,' she said. "'I am going to devote myself to the service of heaven, and to renounce the world entirely.' "'But are you not mistaken with regard to your vocation?' Are you not mistaken in supposing it to be the will of heaven? No, since heaven has been pleased to throw you in my way. Had it not been for you, I should certainly have sunk from fatigue on the road, and since heaven, I repeat, has thrown you in my way, it is because it has willed that I should carry out my intention. "'Oh!' said D'Artagnan, doubtingly. "'That is rather a subtle distinction, I think.' "'Whatever it may be,' returned the young girl, "'I have acquainted you with the steps I have taken, "'and with my fixed resolution. "'And now I have one last favour to ask of you, "'even while I return you my thanks.' "'The King,' is entirely ignorant of my flight from the Palais-Royal, and is ignorant also of what I am about to do. "'The King! Ignorant, you say!' exclaimed D'Artagnan. "'Take care, mademoiselle! You are not aware of what you are doing. No one ought to do anything with which the King is unacquainted, especially those who belong to the court.' I no longer belong to the court, monsieur." D'Artagnan looked at the young girl with increasing astonishment. "'Do not be uneasy, monsieur,' she continued. "'I have well calculated everything. And were it not so, it would now be too late to reconsider my resolution. All is decided.' "'Well, mademoiselle, what do you wish me to do?' In the name of that sympathy which misfortune inspires, by your generous feeling, and by your honour as a gentleman, I entreat you to promise me one thing. Name it. Swear to me, Monsieur d'Artagnan, that you will not tell the King that you have seen me, and that I am at the Carmelites. I will not swear that said d'artagnan shaking his head why because i know the king i know you i know myself even nay the whole human race too well 
"'No, no, I will not swear that.' "'In that case,' cried La Valliere, with an energy of which one would hardly have thought her capable, "'instead of the blessing which I should have implored for you until my dying day, I will invoke a curse, for you are rendering me the most miserable creature that ever lived.' We have already observed that D'Artagnan could easily recognize the accents of truth and sincerity, and he could not resist this last appeal. He saw by her face how bitterly she suffered from a feeling of degradation. He remarked her trembling limbs, how her whole slight and delicate frame was violently agitated by some internal struggle, and clearly perceived that resistance might be fatal. "'I will do as you wish, then,' he said. "'Be satisfied, mademoiselle. "'I will say nothing to the king.' "'Oh, thank you, thank you!' exclaimed La Valliere. "'You are the most generous man breathing.' And in her extreme delight she seized hold of D'Artagnan's hands and pressed them between her own. D'Artagnan, who felt himself quite overcome, said, "'This is touching upon my word. She begins where others leave off.' And La Valliere, who in the bitterness of her distress had sunk upon the ground, rose and walked towards the convent of the Carmelites, which could now, in the dawning light, be perceived just before them. D'Artagnan followed her at a distance. The entrance-door was half open. She glided in like a shadow, and thanking D'Artagnan by a parting gesture, disappeared from his sight. When D'Artagnan found himself quite alone, he reflected very profoundly upon what had just taken place. "'Upon my word,' he said, this looks very much like what is called a false position. To keep such a secret as that is to keep a burning coal in one's breeches pocket and trust that it may not burn the stuff. And yet, not to keep it, when I have sworn to do so, is dishonourable. It generally happens that some bright idea or other occurs to me as I am going along but I am very much mistaken if I shall not now have to go a long way in order to find the solution of this affair. Yes, but which way to go? Oh, towards Paris, of course. That is the best way, after all. Only one must make haste, and in order to make haste, four legs are better than two, and I, unhappily, only have two. A horse, a horse, as I heard them say at the theatre in London, my kingdom for a horse. And now I think of it, it need not cost me so much as that, for at the Barriere de la Confrance there is a guard of musketeers, and instead of one horse I need, I shall find ten there. So in pursuance of this resolution, which he adopted with his usual rapidity, 
D'Artagnan immediately turned his back upon the heights of Chaillot, reached the guardhouse, took the fastest horse he could find there, and was at the palace in less than ten minutes. It was striking five as he reached the Palais Royal. The king, he was told, had gone to bed at his usual hour, having been long engaged with Monsieur Colbert, and in all probability was still sound asleep. Come, said D'Artagnan, she spoke the truth. The king is ignorant of everything. If he only knew one half of what has happened, the Palais Royal, by this time, would be turned upside down. End of chapter 26 Chapter 27 of Louise de la Valliere This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Louise de la Valliere by Alexander Dumas Chapter 27 Showing how Louis, on his part, had passed the time from ten to half-past twelve at night. When Louis left the apartments of the maids of honour, he found Colbert awaiting him, to take directions for the next day's ceremony, as the king was then to receive the Dutch and Spanish ambassadors. Louis the Fourteenth had serious causes of dissatisfaction with the Dutch. The States had already been guilty of many mean shifts and evasions with France, and without perceiving or without caring about the chances of a rupture, they again abandoned the alliance with His Most Christian Majesty for the purpose of entering into all kinds of plots with Spain. Louis the Fourteenth, at his accession, that is to say, at the death of Cardinal Mazarin, had found this political question roughly sketched out. The solution was difficult for a young man, but as at that time the king represented the whole nation, anything that the head resolved upon, the body could be found ready to carry out. Any sudden impulse of anger, the reaction of young hot blood upon the brain, would be quite sufficient to change an old form of policy and create another system altogether. The part that diplomatists had to play in those days was that of arranging among themselves the different coups d'etat which their sovereign masters might wish to effect. Louis was not in that calm frame of mind which was necessary to enable him to determine on a wise course of policy still much agitated from the quarrel he had just had with la valliere he walked hastily into his cabinet dimly desirous of finding an opportunity of producing an explosion after he had controlled himself for so long a time colbert as he saw the king enter knew the position of affairs at a glance understood the king's intentions and resolved therefore to manoeuvre a little when Louis requested to be informed what it would be necessary to say on the morrow, Colbert began by expressing his surprise that His Majesty had not been properly informed by Monsieur Fouquet. Monsieur Fouquet, 
he said, is perfectly acquainted with the whole of this Dutch affair. He received the dispatches himself direct. The king, who was accustomed to hear Monsieur Colbert speak in not over-scrupulous terms of Monsieur Fouquet, allowed this remark to pass unanswered, and merely listened. Colbert noticed the effect it had produced, and hastened to back out, saying that M. Fouquet was not on all occasions as blamable as at the first glance might seem to be the case, inasmuch as at the moment he was greatly occupied. The king looked up. "'What do you allude to?' he said. "'Sire, men are but men, and M. Fouquet has his defects as well as his great qualities.' "'Ah! Defects! Who is without them, Monsieur Colbert?' "'Your Majesty, hardly,' said Colbert, boldly, for he knew how to convey a good deal of flattery in a light amount of blame, like the arrow which cleaves the air notwithstanding its weight, thanks to the light feathers which bear it up. The king smiled. "'What defect has Monsieur Fouquet, then?' he said. Still the same, sire. It is said he is in love. In love? With whom? I am not quite sure, sire. I have very little to do with matters of gallantry. At all events, you know, since you speak of it. I have heard a name mentioned. Whose? I cannot now remember whose but I think it is one of Madame's maids of honour. The king started. You know more than you like to say, Monsieur Colbert, he murmured. I assure you, no, sire. At all events, Madame's maids of honour are all known, and in mentioning their names to you, you will perhaps recollect the one you allude to. No, sire. At least try. It would be useless, sire. Whenever the name of any lady who runs the risk of being compromised is concerned, my memory is like a coffer of bronze, the key of which I have lost. A dark cloud seemed to pass over the mind as well as across the face of the king. Then, wishing to appear as if he were perfect master of himself and his feelings, he said, "'And now, for the affair concerning Holland.' "'In the first place, sire, at what hour will Your Majesty receive the ambassadors?' "'Early in the morning.' Eleven o'clock? "'That is too late. Say nine o'clock.' "'That will be too early, sire.' "'For friends, that would be a matter of no importance.' One does what one likes with one's friends. But for one's enemies, in that case, nothing could be better than if they were to feel hurt. I should not be sorry, I confess, to have to finish altogether with these marsh-birds, who annoy me with their cries. It should be precisely as your Majesty desires. At nine o'clock, therefore, I will give the necessary orders. 
Is it to be a formal audience? No. I wish to have an explanation with them, and not to embitter matters, as is always the case when many persons are present. But at the same time, I wish to clear up everything with them, in order not to have to begin over again. Your Majesty will inform me of the persons you wish to be present at the reception. I will draw out a list. Let us speak of the ambassadors. What do they want? Allies with Spain, they gain nothing. Allies with France, they lose much. How is that? Allied with Spain, they see themselves bounded and protected by the possessions of their allies. They cannot touch them, however anxious they may be to do so. From Antwerp to Rotterdam is but a step, and that by way of the Scheldt and the Meuse. If they wish to make a bite at the Spanish cake, you, sire, the son-in-law of the King of Spain, could, with your cavalry, sweep the earth from your dominions to Brussels in a couple of days. Their design is, therefore, only to quarrel so far with you, and only to make you suspect Spain so far as will be sufficient to induce you not to interfere with their own affairs. It would be far more simple, I should imagine, replied the king, to form a solid alliance with me, by means of which I should gain something, while they would gain everything. Not so, for if by chance they were to have you, or France rather, as a boundary, your majesty is not an agreeable neighbour. Young, ardent, warlike, the King of France might inflict some serious mischief on Holland, especially if he were to get near her. I perfectly understand, Monsieur Colbert, and you have explained it very clearly. But be good enough to tell me the conclusion you have arrived at. Your Majesty's own decisions are never deficient in wisdom. What will these ambassadors say to me? They will tell Your Majesty that they are ardently desirous of forming an alliance with you, which will be a falsehood. They will tell Spain that the three powers ought to unite so as to check the prosperity of England, and that will equally be a falsehood. For at present the natural ally of Your Majesty is England, who has ships while we have none. England who can counteract Dutch influence in India. England, in fact, a monocle country, to which Your Majesty is attached by ties of relationship. Good. But how would you answer? I should answer, sire, with the greatest possible moderation of tone, that the disposition of Holland does not seem friendly towards the court of France that the symptoms of public feeling among the Dutch are alarming as regards your Majesty, that certain medals have been struck with insulting devices. "'Towards me!' exclaimed the young king, excitedly. "'Oh, no, sire, no! Insulting is not the word. 
I was mistaken. I ought to have said, immeasurably flattering to the Dutch. Oh, if that be so, the pride of the Dutch is a matter of indifference to me, said the king, sighing. Your Majesty is right, a thousand times right. However, it is never a mistake in politics, your Majesty knows better than myself, to exaggerate a little, in order to obtain a concession in your own favour. If your Majesty were to complain, as if your susceptibility were offended, you would stand in a far higher position with them. "'What are these medals you speak of?' inquired Louis. "'For if I allude to them, I ought to know what to say.' "'Upon my word, sire, I cannot very well tell you. Some overweeningly conceited device. That is the sense of it. The words have little to do with the thing itself.' "'Very good. I will mention the word medal, and they can understand it if they like.' "'Oh, they will understand without any difficulty.' "'Your Majesty can also slip in a few words about certain pamphlets which are being circulated.' "'Never. Pamphlets befoul those who write them, much more than those against whom they are written.' Monsieur Colbert, I thank you. You can leave now. Do not forget the hour I have fixed, and be there yourself. Sire, I await your Majesty's list. True, returned the King. He began to meditate. He had not thought of the list in the least. The clock struck half-past eleven. The king's face revealed a violent conflict between pride and love. The political conversation had dispelled a good deal of the irritation which Louis had felt, and La Vallière's pale, worn features, in his imagination, spoke a very different language from that of the Dutch medals or the Batavian pamphlets. He sat for ten minutes debating within himself whether he should or should not return to La Vallière. But Colbert, having with some urgency respectfully requested that the list might be furnished him, the King was ashamed to be thinking of mere matters of affection, where important state affairs required his attention. He therefore dictated, The Queen Mother, The Queen, Madame, Madame de Motteville, Madame de Châtillon, Madame de Navailles, and for the men, Monsieur le Prince, Monsieur de Gramont, Monsieur de Manicon, Monsieur de Saint-Aignan, and the officers on duty. The ministers? asked Colbert. As a matter of course, and the secretaries also. Sire, I will leave at once in order to get everything prepared. The orders will be at the different residences to-morrow. Say rather to-day, replied Louis mournfully, as the clock struck twelve. It was the very hour 
when poor La Valliere was almost dying from anguish and bitter suffering. The king's attendants entered, it being the hour of his retirement to his chamber. The queen, indeed, had been waiting for more than an hour. Louis accordingly retreated to his bedroom with a sigh. But as he sighed, he congratulated himself on his courage, and applauded himself for having been as firm in love as in affairs of state. End of chapter 27 Chapter Twenty Eight of Louise de la Valliere. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Louise de la Valliere by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter Twenty Eight The Ambassadors. D'Artagnan had, with very few exceptions, learned almost all of the particulars of what we have just been relating for among his friends he reckoned all the useful, serviceable people in the royal household, officious attendants who were proud of being recognized by the captain of the musketeers, for the captain's influence was very great, and then, in addition to any ambitious views they may have imagined he could promote, they were proud of being regarded as worth being spoken to by a man as brave as D'Artagnan. In this manner D'Artagnan learned every morning what he had not been able either to see or to ascertain the night before, from the simple fact of his not being ubiquitous, so that, with the information he had been able by his own means to pick up during the day, and with what he had gathered from others, he succeeded in making up a bundle of weapons which he was in the prudent habit of using only when the occasion required. In this way, D'Artagnan's two eyes rendered him the same service as the hundred eyes of Argus, Political secrets, bedside revelations, hints or scraps of conversation dropped by the courtiers on the threshold of the royal antechamber. In this way, D'Artagnan managed to ascertain and to store away everything in the vast and impenetrable mausoleum of his memory by the side of those royal secrets so dearly bought and faithfully preserved. He therefore knew of the king's interview with Colbert and the appointment made for the ambassadors in the morning and consequently that the question of the medals would be brought up for debate, and while he was arranging and constructing the conversation upon a few chance words which had reached his ears, he returned to his post in the royal apartments, so as to be there at the very moment the king awoke. It happened that the king rose very early, proving thereby that he too, on his side, had slept but indifferently. Towards seven o'clock he half opened his door very gently, d'artagnan was at his post his majesty was pale and seemed wearied he had not moreover quite finished dressing send for monsieur de saint-aignan he said saint-aignan was probably awaiting a summons for the messenger when he reached his apartment found him already dressed saint-aignan hastened to the king in obedience of the summons a moment afterwards the king and saint-aignan passed by together the king walking first d'artagnan went to the window which looked out upon the courtyard he had no need to put himself to the trouble of watching in what direction the king went for he had no difficulty in guessing beforehand where his majesty was going the king in fact bent his steps towards the apartments of the maids of honour 
a circumstance which in no way astonished d'artagnan for he more than suspected although la valliere had not breathed a syllable on the subject that the king had some kind of reparation to make saint-aignan followed him as he had done the previous evening rather less uneasy in his mind though still slightly agitated for he fervently trusted that at seven o'clock in the morning there might be only himself and the king awake amongst the august guests at the palace d'artagnan stood at the window careless and perfectly calm in his manner one could almost have sworn that he noticed nothing and was utterly ignorant who were these two hunters after adventures passing like shadows across the courtyard wrapped up in their cloaks and yet all the while that d'artagnan appeared not to be looking at them at all he did not for one moment lose sight of them and while he whistled that old march of the musketeers which he rarely recalled except under great emergencies he conjectured and prophesied how terrible would be the storm which would be raised on the king's return in fact when the king entered la valliere's apartment and found the room empty and the bed untouched he began to be alarmed and called out to montalais who immediately answered the summons but her astonishment was equal to the king's all that she could tell his majesty was that she had fancied she had heard la valliere's weeping during a portion of the night but knowing that his majesty had paid her a visit she had not dared to inquire what was the matter but inquired the king where do you suppose she has gone sire replied montalais louise is of a very sentimental disposition and as i have often seen her rise at daybreak in order to go out into the garden she may perhaps be there now this appeared probable and the king immediately ran down the staircase in search of the fugitive d'artagnan saw him grow very pale and talking in an excited manner with his companion as he went towards the gardens saint-aignan followed him out of breath d'artagnan did not stir from the window but went on whistling looking as if he saw nothing yet seeing everything come come he murmured when the king disappeared his majesty's passion is stronger than i thought he is now doing i think what he never did for mademoiselle de mancini in a quarter of an hour the king again appeared he had looked everywhere was completely out of breath and as a matter of course had not discovered anything saint-aignan who still followed him was fanning himself with his hat and in a gasping voice asking for information about la valliere from such of the servants as were about in fact from every one he met among others he came across manicon who had arrived from fontainebleau by easy stages for whilst others had performed the journey in six hours he had taken four-and-twenty have you seen mademoiselle de la valliere saint-aignan asked him whereupon manicon dreamy and absent as usual answered thinking that someone was asking him about de guiche thank you the comte is a little better as he continued on his way until he reached the antechamber where d'artagnan was whom he asked to explain how it was that the king looked as he thought so bewildered to which d'artagnan replied that he was quite mistaken that the king on the contrary was as lively and merry as he could possibly be in the midst of all this eight o'clock struck it was usual for the king to take his breakfast at this hour for the code of etiquette prescribed that the king should always be hungry at eight o'clock his breakfast was laid upon a small table in his bedroom and he ate very fast saint-aignan of whom he would not lose sight waited on the king 
He then disposed of several military audiences, during which he dispatched Saint-Aignan to see what he could find out. Then, still occupied, full of anxiety, still watching Saint-Aignan's return, who had sent out the servants in every direction to make inquiries, and who had also gone himself, the hour of nine struck, and the king forthwith passed into his large cabinet. As the clock was striking nine, the ambassadors entered, and as it finished, the two queens and madame made their appearance. There were three ambassadors from Holland and two from Spain. The king glanced at them and then bowed, and at the same moment Saint-Aignan entered, an entrance which the king regarded as far more important, on a different sense, however, than that of the ambassadors, however numerous they might be, and from whatever country they came. And so, setting everything aside, the king made a sign of interrogation to Saint-Aignan, which the latter answered by a most decisive negative. The king almost entirely lost his courage, but as the queens, the members of the nobility who were present, and the ambassadors had their eyes fixed upon him, he overcame his emotion by a violent effort, and invited the latter to speak, whereupon one of the Spanish deputies made a long oration, in which he boasted the advantages which the Spanish alliance would offer. The king interrupted him, saying, "'Monsieur, I trust that whatever is best for France must be exceedingly advantageous for Spain.' This remark, and particularly the peremptory tone in which it was pronounced, made the ambassadors pale, and brought the colour into the cheeks of the two queens, who, being Spanish, felt wounded in their pride of relationship and nationality by this reply. The Dutch ambassador then began to address himself to the king, and complained of the injurious suspicions which the king exhibited against the government of his country. The king interrupted him, saying, "'It is very singular, monsieur, that you should come with any complaint, when it is I, rather, who have reason to be dissatisfied, and yet, you see, I do not complain.' "'Complain, sire, and in what respect?' The king smiled bitterly. "'Will you blame me, monsieur,' he said, "'if I should happen to entertain suspicions "'against a government which authorises "'and protects international impertinence?' "'Sire!' "'I tell you,' resumed the king, "'exciting himself by a recollection "'of his own personal annoyance, "'rather than from political grounds, "'that Holland is a land of refuge "'for all who hate me, "'and especially for all who malign me.' "'Oh, sire!' "'You wish for proofs, perhaps. "'Very good.' they can be had easily enough. Whence proceed all those vile and insolent pamphlets which represent me as a monarch without glory and without authority? Your printing presses groan under their number. If my secretaries were here, I would mention the titles of the works as well as the names of the printers. Sire, replied the ambassador, a pamphlet can hardly be regarded as the work of a whole nation. Is it just, is it reasonable, that a great and powerful monarch like your majesty should render a whole nation responsible for the crime of a few madmen, who are, perhaps, only scribbling in a garret for a few sous to buy bread for their family? That may be the case, I admit, but when the mint itself at Amsterdam strikes off medals which reflect disgrace upon me, is that also the crime of a few madmen? Medals, stammered out the ambassador. Medals, repeated the king, looking at Colbert. Your Majesty the ambassador ventured, should be quite sure. The king still looked at Colbert, but Colbert appeared not to understand him, and maintained an unbroken silence, notwithstanding the king's repeated hints. D'Artagnan then approached the king, 
and taking a piece of money out of his pocket, he placed it in the king's hands, saying, This is the medal your majesty alludes to. The king looked at it, and with a look which, ever since he had become his own master, was ever piercing as the eagles, observed an insulting device representing Holland arresting the progress of the sun, with this inscription, Inconspectu meo stetis sol. In my presence the sun stands still, exclaimed the king furiously. Ah, you will hardly deny it now, I suppose. And the sun, said D'Artagnan, is this, as he pointed to the panels of the cabinet, where the sun was brilliantly represented in every direction, with this motto, Nec pluribus impar. Louis' anger, increased by the bitterness of his own personal sufferings, hardly required this additional circumstance to ferment it. Every one saw from the kindling passion in the king's eyes that an explosion was imminent. A look from Colbert kept postponed the bursting of the storm. The ambassador ventured to frame excuses by saying that the vanity of nations was a matter of little consequence, that Holland was proud that, with such limited resources, she had maintained her rank as a great nation, even against powerful monarchs, and that if a little smoke had intoxicated his countrymen, the king would be kindly disposed, and would even excuse, this intoxication. The king seemed as if he would be glad of some suggestion. He looked at Colbert, who remained impassable, then at D'Artagnan, who simply shrugged his shoulders, a movement which was like the opening of the floodgates, whereby the king's anger, which he had restrained for so long a period, now burst forth. As no one knew what direction his anger might take, all preserved a dead silence. The second ambassador took advantage of it to begin his excuses also. While he was speaking, and while the king, who had again gradually returned to his own personal reflections, was automatically listening to the voice, full of nervous anxiety, with the air of an absent man listening to the murmuring of a cascade, D'Artagnan, on whose left hand Saint-Aignan was standing, approached the latter, and, in a voice which was loud enough to reach the king's ears, said, "'Have you heard the news?' "'What news?' said Saint-Aignan. "'About La Valliere.' The king started, and advanced his head. "'What has happened to La Valliere?' inquired Saint-Aignan, in a tone which can easily be imagined. "'Ah, poor girl, she is going to take the veil.' "'The veil?' exclaimed Saint-Aignan. "'The veil?' cried the king, in the midst of the ambassador's discourse. But then, mindful of the rules of etiquette, he mastered himself, still listening, however, with rapt attention. "'What order?' inquired Saint-Aignan. "'The Carmelites of Chayot. "'Who the deuce told you that? "'She did herself. "'You have seen her, then? "'Nay, I even went with her to the Carmelites.' "'The king did not lose a syllable of this conversation, "'and again he could hardly control his feelings. "'But what was the cause of her flight?' inquired Saint-Aignan. "'Because the poor girl was driven away from the court yesterday,' replied D'Artagnan. "'He had no sooner said this than the king,' with an authoritative gesture, said to the ambassador, "'Enough, monsieur, enough!' Then, advancing towards the captain, he exclaimed, "'Who says Mademoiselle de la Valliere is going to take the religious vows?' "'Monsieur d'Artagnan,' answered the favourite. "'Is it true what you say?' said the king, turning towards the musketeer. "'As true as truth itself!' The king clenched his hands and turned pale. "'You have something further to add, monsieur d'Artagnan?' he said. "'I know nothing more, sire.' "'You added that Mademoiselle de la Valliere had been driven away from the court?' "'Yes, sire.' 
Is that true also? Ascertain for yourself, sire. And from whom? Ah, sighed D'Artagnan, like a man who is declining to say anything further. The king almost bounded from his seat, regardless of ambassadors, ministers, courtiers, queens, and politics. The queen mother rose. She had heard everything, or, if she had not heard everything, she had guessed it. Madame, almost fainting from anger and fear, endeavoured to rise as the queen mother had done, but she sank down again upon her chair, which, by an instinctive movement, she made roll back a few paces. "'Gentlemen,' said the king, "'the audience is over. I will communicate my answer, or rather my will, to Spain and to Holland,' and with a proud, imperious gesture he dismissed the ambassadors. "'Take care, my son,' said the queen mother indignantly. "'You are hardly master of yourself, I think.' "'Ah, madame,' returned the young lion, with a terrible gesture, "'if I am not master of myself, I will be, I promise you, of those who do me a deadly injury. Come with me, Monsieur d'Artagnan, come.' and he quitted the room in the midst of general stupefaction and dismay. The king hastily descended the staircase, and was about to cross the courtyard. "'Sire,' said D'Artagnan, "'your majesty mistakes the way. "'No, I am going to the stables.' "'That is useless, sire, for I have horses ready for your majesty.' The king's only answer was a look, but this look promised more than the ambition of three D'Artagnans could have dared to hope. End of Chapter 28。Chapter 29 of Louise de la Valliere。This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Louise de la Valliere by Alexander Dumas. Chapter 29. Chaillot. Although they had not been summoned, Manicamp and Malicorne had followed the king and D'Artagnan. They were both exceedingly intelligent men, except that Malicorne was too precipitate, owing to ambition, while Manicamp was frequently too tardy, owing to indolence. On this occasion, however, they arrived at precisely the proper moment. Five horses were in readiness. Two were seized upon by the king and D'Artagnan, two others by Manicamp and Malicorne, while a groom belonging to the stables mounted the fifth. The cavalcade set off at a gallop. D'Artagnan had been very careful in his selection of the horses. They were the very animals for distressed lovers, horses which did not simply run, but flew. Within ten minutes after their departure, the cavalcade, amidst a cloud of dust, arrived at Chaillot. The king literally threw himself off his horse, but notwithstanding the rapidity with which he accomplished this manoeuvre, he found D'Artagnan already holding his stirrup. With a sign of acknowledgment to the musketeer, he threw the bridle to the groom and darted into the vestibule, violently pushed open the door, and entered the reception-room. Manicamp, Malicorne, and the groom remained outside, D'Artagnan alone following him. When he entered the reception-room, the first object which met his gaze was Louise herself, not simply on her knees, but lying at the foot of a large stone crucifix. 
the young girl was stretched upon the damp flagstones, scarcely visible in the gloom of the apartment, which was lighted only by means of a narrow window, protected by bars and completely shaded by creeping plants. When the king saw her in this state, he thought she was dead, and uttered a loud cry, which made D'Artagnan hurry into the room. The king had already passed one of his arms around her body, and D'Artagnan assisted him in raising the poor girl, whom the torpor of death seemed already to have taken possession of. D'Artagnan seized hold of the alarm-bell, and rang with all his might. The Carmelite sisters immediately hastened at the summons, and uttered loud exclamations of alarm and indignation at the sight of two men holding a woman in their arms. The superior also hurried to the scene of action, but far more a creature of the world than any of the female members of the court, notwithstanding her austerity of manners, she recognized the king at the first glance, by the respect which those present exhibited for him, as well as by the imperious and authoritative way in which he had thrown the whole establishment into confusion. As soon as she saw the king, she retired to her own apartments, in order to avoid compromising her dignity. But by one of the nuns she sent various cordials, hungry water, etc., etc., and ordered that all the doors should immediately be closed, a command which was just in time, for the king's distress was fast becoming of a most clamorous and despairing character. He had almost decided to send for his own physician when La Vallière exhibited signs of returning animation. The first object which met her gaze as she opened her eyes was the king at her feet. In all probability she did not recognize him, for she uttered a deep sigh full of anguish and distress. Louis fixed his eyes devouringly upon her face, and when in the course of a few moments she recognized Louis, she endeavored to tear herself from his embrace. "'Oh, heavens!' she murmured. "'Is not the sacrifice yet made?' "'No! No!' exclaimed the king, and it shall not be made, I swear. Notwithstanding her weakness and utter despair, she rose from the ground, saying, It must be made, however, it must be, so do not stay me in my purpose. I leave you to sacrifice yourself. I never, never, exclaimed the king. Well, murmured d'artagnan i may as well go now as soon as they begin to speak we may as well prevent there being any listeners and he quitted the room leaving the lovers alone sire continued la valliere not another word i implore you do not destroy the only future i can hope for my salvation do not destroy the glory and brightness of your own future for a mere caprice. A caprice! cried the king. Oh, sire, it is now only that I can see clearly into your heart. You, Louise? What mean you? An inexplicable impulse, 
foolish and unreasonable in its nature, may ephemerally appear to offer a sufficient excuse for your conduct. But there are duties imposed upon you, which are incompatible with your regard for a poor girl such as I am. So forget me. I forget you. You have already done so once. Rather would I die. You cannot love one whose peace of mind you hold so lightly, and whom you so cruelly abandoned last night to the bitterness of death. What can you mean? Explain yourself, Louise. What did you ask me yesterday morning? To love you. What did you promise me in return? Never to let midnight pass without offering me an opportunity of reconciliation, if by any chance your anger should be roused against me. Oh, forgive me, Louise, forgive me! I was mad with jealousy. Jealousy is a sentiment unworthy of a king, a man. You may become jealous again, and will end by killing me. Be merciful, then, and leave me now to die. Another word, mademoiselle, in that strain, and you will see me expire at your feet. No, no, sire. I am better acquainted with my own demerits, and believe me that to sacrifice yourself for one whom all despise would be needless. Give me the names of those you have cause to complain of. I have no complaint, sire, to prefer against any one, no one but myself to accuse. Farewell, sire. You are compromising yourself in speaking to me in such a manner. Oh, be careful, Louise, in what you say. You are reducing me to the darkness of despair. Oh, sire, sire, leave me at least the protection of heaven, I implore you. No, no, heaven itself shall not tear me from you. Save me, then, cried the poor girl, from those determined and pitiless enemies who are thirsting to annihilate my life and honour too. If you have courage enough to love me, show at least that you have power enough to defend me. But no, she whom you say you love, others insult and mock, and drive shamelessly away. And the gentle-hearted girl, forced by her own bitter distress to accuse others, wrung her hands in an uncontrollable agony of tears. "'You have been driven away!' exclaimed the king. "'This is the second time I have heard that said.' "'I have been driven away with shame and ignominy, sire. You see, then, that I have no other protector but heaven, no consolation but prayer, and this cloister is my only refuge. My palace, my whole court, shall be your park of peace. Oh, fear nothing further now, Louise. Those, be they men or women, who yesterday drove you away, shall to-morrow tremble before you. To-morrow, do I say. Nay, this very day I have already shown my displeasure, 
have already threatened. It is in my power, even now, to hurl the thunderbolt I have hitherto withheld. Louise, Louise, you shall be bitterly revenged. Tears of blood shall repay for the tears you have shed. Give me only the names of your enemies. Never, never. How can I show any anger, then? Sire, those upon whom your anger would be prepared to fall would force you to draw back your hand upraised to punish. Oh, you do not know me, cried the king, exasperated. Rather than draw back, I would sacrifice my kingdom and would abjure my family. Yes, I would strike until this arm had utterly destroyed all those who had ventured to make themselves the enemies of the gentlest and best of creatures. And as he said these words, Louis struck his fist violently against the oaken wainscoting with a force which alarmed La Valliere, for his anger, owing to his unbounded power, had something imposing and threatening in it, like the lightning which may at any time prove deadly. She, who thought that her own sufferings could not be surpassed, was overwhelmed by a suffering which revealed itself by menace and by violence. "'Sire,' she said, "'for the last time I implore you to leave me. Already do I feel strengthened by the calm seclusion of this asylum, and the protection of heaven has reassured me. For all the petty human meanness of this world are forgotten beneath the divine protection. Once more, then, sire, and for the last time, I implore you to leave me. Confess, rather, cried Louis, that you have never loved me. Admit that my humility and my repentance are flattering to your pride, but that my distress affects you not, that the king of this wide realm is no longer regarded as a lover whose tenderness of devotion is capable of working out your happiness, but as a despot whose caprice has crushed your very heart beneath his iron heel. Do not say you are seeking heaven. Say, rather, you are fleeing from the king. Louise's heart was wrung within her as she listened to his passionate utterance, which made the fever of hope course once more through her every vein. But did you not hear me say that I have been driven away, scorned, despised? I will make you the most respected and most adored and the most envied of my whole court. Prove to me that you have not ceased to love me. In what way? By leaving me. I will prove it to you by never leaving you again. But do you imagine, sire, that I shall allow that? Do you imagine that I will let you come to an open rupture with every member of your family? Do you imagine that for my sake you could abandon mother, wife, and sister? Ah! You have named them then at last. 
It is they, then, who have wrought this grievous injury. By the heaven above us, then, upon them shall my anger fall. That is the very reason why my future terrifies me, why I refuse everything, why I do not wish you to revenge me. Tears enough have already been shed, sufficient sorrow and affliction have already been occasioned. I at least will never be the cause of sorrow, or affliction, or distress to whomsoever it may be, for I have mourned and suffered and wept too much myself. And do you count my sufferings, my tears, as nothing? In heaven's name, sire, do not speak to me in that manner. I need all my courage to enable me to accomplish the sacrifice. Louise, Louise, I implore you, whatever you desire, whatever you command, whether vengeance or forgiveness, your slightest wish shall be obeyed, but do not abandon me. Alas, sire, we must part. You do not love me, then? Heaven knows I do. It is false, Louise. It is false. Oh, sire, if I did not love you, I should let you do what you please. I should let you revenge me in return for the insult which has been inflicted on me. I should accept the brilliant triumph to my pride which you propose. And yet you cannot deny that I reject even the sweet compensation your affection affords. That affection which for me is life itself, for I wish to die when I thought that you loved me no longer. Yes, yes, I now know, I now perceive it. You are the sweetest and best and purest of women. There is no one so worthy as yourself, not alone of my respect and devotion, but also the respect and devotion of all who surround me and therefore no one shall be loved like yourself. No one shall ever possess the influence over me that you wield. You wish me to be calm, to forgive. Be it so, you shall find me perfectly unmoved. You wish to reign by gentleness and clemency. I will be clement and gentle. Dictate for me the conduct you wish me to adopt, and I will obey blindly. In heaven's name, no, sire. What am I, a poor girl, to dictate to so great a monarch as yourself? You are my life, the very spirit and principle of my being. Is it not the spirit that rules the body? You love me then, sire. On my knees, yes, with my hands upraised to you, yes, with all the strength and power of my being, yes. I love you so deeply that I would lay down my life for you, gladly, at your merest wish. Oh, sire, now I know you love me, I have nothing to wish for in the world. Give me your hand, sire, and then farewell. 
I have enjoyed in this life all the happiness I was ever meant for. Oh, no, no, your happiness is not a happiness of yesterday. It is of today, of tomorrow, ever enduring. The future is yours. Everything which is mine is yours too. Away with these ideas of separation, away with these gloomy, despairing thoughts. You will live for me as I will live for you, Louise. And he threw himself at her feet, embracing her knees with the wildest transports of joy and gratitude. Oh, sire, sire, all that is but a wild dream. Why a wild dream? Because I cannot return to the court. Exiled, how can I see you again? Would it not be far better to bury myself in a cloister for the rest of my life, with the rich consolation that your affection gives me, with the pulses of your heart beating for me, and your latest confession of attachment still ringing in my ears? Exiled! You! exclaimed Louis the Fourteenth. And who dares to exile, let me ask, when I recall? Oh, sire, something which is greater than, and superior to the kings even, the world and public opinion. Reflect for a moment. You cannot love a woman who has been ignominiously driven away. Love one whom your mother has stained with suspicions, one whom your sister has threatened with disgrace. Such a woman, indeed, would be unworthy of you. Unworthy? One who belongs to me? Yes, sire, precisely on that account. From the very moment she belongs to you, the character of your mistress renders her unworthy. You are right, Louise. Every shade of delicacy of feeling is yours. Very well. You shall not be exiled. Ah! From the tone in which you speak, you have not heard Madame. That is very clear. I will appeal from her to my mother. Again, sire, you have not seen your mother. She, too! My poor Louise! Everyone's hand, then, is against you. Yes, yes, poor Louise, who was already bending beneath the fury of the storm, when you arrived and crushed her beneath the weight of your displeasure. Oh, forgive me! You will not, I know, be able to make either of them yield. Believe me, the evil cannot be repaired for I will not allow you to use violence or to exercise your authority. Very well, Louise. To prove to you how fondly I love you, I will do one thing. I will see Madame. I will make her revoke her sentence. I will compel her to do so. Compel? Oh, no, no. True, you are right. I will bend her." Louise shook her head. 
"'I will entreat her if it be necessary,' said Louis. "'Will you believe in my affection after that?' Louise drew herself up. "'Oh, never, never shall you humiliate yourself on my account. Sooner a thousand times would I die.' Louis reflected. His features assumed a dark expression. "'I will love you as much as you have loved. I will suffer as keenly as you have suffered. This shall be my expiation in your eyes. Come, mademoiselle, put aside these paltry considerations. Let us show ourselves as great as our sufferings, as strong as our affection for each other.' And as he said this, he took her in his arms and encircled her waist with both his hands, saying, "'My own love, my own dearest and best beloved, follow me!' She made a final effort, in which she concentrated, no longer all of her firmness of will, for that had long since been overcome, but all her physical strength. No she replied weakly. No, no, I should die from shame. No, you shall return like a queen. No one knows of your having left, except indeed d'Artagnan. He has betrayed me, then. In what way? He promised faithfully. I promised to say nothing to the king, said d'Artagnan, putting his head through the half-open door and I kept my word. I was speaking to Monsieur de Saint-Aignan, and it was not my fault if the king overheard me. Was it, sire? It is quite true, said the king. Forgive him. La Valliere smiled, and held out her small white hand to the musketeer. Monsieur d'Artagnan, said the king, be good enough to see if you can find a carriage for Mademoiselle de la Valliere. Sire, said the captain, the carriage is waiting at the gate. You are a magic mould of forethought, exclaimed the king. You have taken a long time to find it out, muttered d'Artagnan, notwithstanding he was flattered by the praise bestowed upon him. La Valliere was overcome. After a little further hesitation, she allowed herself to be led away, half-fainting by her royal lover. But as she was on the point of leaving the room, she tore herself from the king's grasp and returned to the stone crucifix, which she kissed, saying, "'O oh, heaven! It was thou who drewest me hither, thou who has rejected me. But thy grace is infinite. Whenever I shall return again,' Forget that I have ever separated myself from thee, for when I return, it will be never to leave thee again. The king could not restrain his emotion, and d'Artagnan even was overcome. Louis led the young girl away, lifted her into the carriage, and directed d'Artagnan to seat himself beside her, while he, mounting his horse, spurred violently towards the Palais Royal, where immediately on his arrival he sent to request an audience of Madame. End of chapter 29
Chapter Thirty of Louise de la Valliere. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Louise de la Valliere by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter Thirty, Madame. From the manner in which the king had dismissed the ambassadors. Even the least clear-sighted persons belonging to the court imagined war would ensue. The ambassadors themselves, but slightly acquainted with the king's domestic disturbances, had interpreted as directed against themselves the celebrated sentence, "'If I be not master of myself, I at least will be so of those who insult me.' Happily for the destinies of France and Holland, Colbert had followed them out of the king's presence, for the purpose of explaining matters to them. But the two queens and madame, who were perfectly aware of every particular that had taken place, in their several households, having heard the king's remark so full of dark meaning, retired to their own apartments in no little fear and chagrin. Madame especially felt that the royal anger might fall upon her, and as she was brave and exceedingly proud, Instead of seeking support and encouragement from the Queen Mother, she had returned to her own apartments, if not without some uneasiness, at least without any intention of avoiding an encounter. Anne of Austria, from time to time, at frequent intervals, sent messages to learn if the King had returned. The silence which the whole palace preserved upon the matter, and upon Louise's disappearance, was indicative of a long train of misfortunes to all those who knew the haughty and irritable humour of the king. But Madame, unmoved in spite of all the flying rumours, shut herself up in her apartments, sent for Montalais, and with a voice as calm as she could possibly command, desired her to relate all she knew about the event itself. At the moment that the eloquent Montalais was concluding, with all kinds of oratorical precautions, and was recommending, if not in actual language, at least in spirit, that she should show forbearance towards La Valliere, Monsieur Malicorne made his appearance to beg an audience of Madame on behalf of the King. Montalais's worthy friend bore upon his countenance all the signs of the very liveliest emotion. It was impossible to be mistaken. The interview which the King requested would be one of the most interesting chapters in the history of the hearts of kings and of men. Madame was disturbed by her brother-in-law's arrival. She did not expect it so soon, nor had she, indeed, expected any direct step on Louis's part. Besides, all women who wage war successfully by indirect means are invariably neither very skilful nor very strong when it becomes a question of accepting a pitched battle. Madame, however, was not one who ever drew back. She had the very opposite defect, or qualification, in whichever light it may be considered. She took an exaggerated view of what constituted real courage, and therefore the King's message of which Malicorne had been the bearer was regarded by her as the bugle-note, proclaiming the commencement of hostilities. She therefore boldly accepted the gauge of battle. Five minutes afterwards the king ascended the staircase. His colour was heightened from having ridden hard, 
His dusty and disordered clothes formed a singular contrast with the fresh and perfectly arranged toilet of Madame, who, notwithstanding rouge on her cheeks, turned pale as Louis entered the room. Louis lost no time in approaching the object of his visit. He sat down, and Montalais disappeared. "'My dear sister,' said the king, "'you are aware that Mademoiselle de la Valliere fled from her room this morning, and that she has retired to a cloister, overwhelmed by grief and despair.' As he pronounced these words, the king's voice was singularly moved. "'Your Majesty is the first to inform me of it,' replied Madame. "'I should have thought that you might have learned it this morning, during the reception of the ambassadors,' said the king. "'From your emotions, sire, I imagined that something extraordinary had happened, but without knowing what.' The king, with his usual frankness, went straight to the point. "'Why did you send Mademoiselle de la Vallier away?' "'Because I had reason to be dissatisfied with her conduct,' she replied dryly. The king became crimson, and his eyes kindled with a fire which it required all Madame's courage to support. He mastered his anger, however, and continued. "'A stronger reason than that is surely requisite, for one so good and kind as you are. To turn away and dishonour not only the young girl herself, but every member of her family as well. You know that the whole city has its eyes fixed upon the conduct of the female portion of the court. To dismiss a maid of honour is to attribute a crime to her, at the very least a fault. What crime, what fault, has Mademoiselle de la Valliere been guilty of? "'Since you constitute yourself the protector of Mademoiselle de la Valliere, replied Madame coldly, "'I will give you those explanations, which I should have a perfect right to withhold from every one.' "'Even the king!' exclaimed Louis, as with a sudden gesture he covered his head with his hat. "'You have called me your sister,' said Madame, "'and I am in my own apartments.' "'It matters not!' said the youthful monarch, ashamed at having been hurried away by his anger. "'Neither you, nor any one else in this kingdom, can assert a right to withhold an explanation in my presence.' "'Since that is the way you regard it,' said Madame, in a hoarse, angry tone of voice, "'all that remains for me to do is bow submission to your Majesty, and to be silent.' "'Not so. Let there be no equivocation between us.' The protection with which you surround Mademoiselle de la Valliere does not impose any respect. No equivocation, I repeat. You are perfectly aware that as the head of the nobility in France I am accountable to all for the honour of every family. You dismiss Mademoiselle de la Valliere, or whoever else it may be, Madame shrugged her shoulders, or whoever else it may be, I repeat, continued the king, and as, acting in that manner, you cast a dishonourable reflection upon that person, I ask you for an explanation in order that I may confirm or annul the sentence. "'Annul my sentence?' exclaimed Madame haughtily. "'What?' 
when i have discharged one of my attendants do you order me to take her back again the king remained silent this would be sheer abuse of power sire it would be indecorous and unseemly madame as a woman i should revolt against an abuse so insulting to me i should no longer be able to regard myself as a princess of your blood a daughter of a monarch i should be the meanest of creatures more humbled and disgraced than the servant i had sent away the king rose from his seat with anger it cannot be a heart he cried that you have beating in your bosom if you act in such a way with me i may have reason to act with corresponding severity it sometimes happens that in a battle a chance ball may reach its mark the observation which the king had made without any particular intention struck madame home and staggered her for a moment some day or other she might indeed have reason to dread reprisals at all events sire she said explain what you require i ask madame what has mademoiselle de la valliere done to warrant your conduct toward her she is the most cunning fermenter of intrigues i know she was the occasion of two personal friends engaging in mortal combat and has made people talk of her in such shameless terms that the whole court is indignant at the mere sound of her name she she cried the king under her soft and hypocritical manner continued madame she hides a disposition full of foul and dark conceit she you may possibly be deceived sire but i know her right well she is capable of creating dispute and misunderstanding between the most affectionate relatives and the most intimate friends you see that she has already sown discord betwixt us two i do assure you said the king sire look well into the case as it stands we were living on the most friendly understanding and by the artfulness of her tales and complaints she has set your majesty against me i swear to you said the king that on no occasion has a bitter word ever passed her lips i swear that even in my wildest bursts of passion she would not allow me to menace any one and i swear too that you do not possess a more devoted and respectful friend than she is friend said madame with an expression of supreme disdain take care madame said the king you forget that you now understand me and that from this moment everything is equalized mademoiselle de la valliere will be whatever i may choose her to become and to-morrow if i were determined to do so i could seat her on a throne she was not born to a throne at least and whatever you may do can affect the future alone but cannot affect the past. Madame, towards you I have shown every kind consideration and every eager desire to please you. Do not remind me that I am master. It is the second time, sire, that you have made that remark, and I have already informed you I am ready to submit. 
"'In that case, then, you will confer upon me the favour of receiving Mademoiselle de la Valliere back again.' "'For what purpose, sire, since you have a throne to bestow upon her? I am too insignificant to protect so exalted a personage.' "'Nay, a truce to this bitter and disdainful spirit. Grant me her forgiveness.' "'Never!' You drive me, then, to open warfare in my own family. I, too, have a family with whom I can find refuge. Do you mean that as a threat? And could you forget yourself so far? Do you believe that if you push the affront to that extent, your family would encourage you? I hope, sire that you will not force me to take any step which would be unworthy of my rank. I hoped that you would remember our recent friendship, and that you would treat me as a brother." Madame paused for a moment. "'I do not disown you for a brother,' she said, in refusing your Majesty an injustice." "'An injustice?' "'Oh, sire, if I informed others of La Valliere's conduct, if the Queen knew, come, come, Henrietta, let your heart speak. Remember that for however brief a time you once loved me. Remember, too, that human hearts should be as merciful as the heart of a sovereign master. Do not be inflexible with others. Forgive La Valliere. I cannot. She has offended me. But for my sake— "'Sire, it is for your sake I would do anything in the world, except that.' "'You will drive me to despair. You compel me to turn to the last resource of weak people, and seek counsel of my angry and wrathful disposition.' "'I advise you to be reasonable.' "'Reasonable? I can be so no longer.' "'Nay, sire, I pray you, for pity's sake, Henrietta!' It is the first time I entreated any one, and I have no hope in any one but in you. Oh, sire, you are weeping. From rage, from humiliation, that I, the king, should have been obliged to descend to entreaty. I shall hate this moment during my whole life. You have made me suffer, in one moment, more distress and more degradation than I could have anticipated in the greatest extremity in life." And the king rose and gave free vent to his tears, which in fact were tears of anger and shame. Madame was not touched exactly, for the best women, when their pride is hurt, are without pity. But she was afraid that the tears the king was shedding might possibly carry away every soft and tender feeling in his heart. "'Give what commands you please, sire,' she said, "'and since you prefer my humiliation to your own, although mine is public and yours has been witnessed but by myself alone, speak. I will obey your majesty.' "'No, no, Henrietta!' exclaimed Louis, transported with gratitude. You will have yielded to a brother's wishes. I no longer have any brother, since I obey. All that I have would be too little in return. 
How passionately you love, sire, when you do love. Louis did not answer. He had seized upon Madame's hand and covered it with kisses. And so you will receive this poor girl back again, and will forgive her. You will find how gentle and pure-hearted she is. I will maintain her in my household. No, you will give her your friendship, my sister. I never liked her. Well, for my sake, you will treat her kindly, will you not, Henrietta? I will treat her as your mistress. The king rose suddenly to his feet. By this word, which had so infelicitously escaped her, Madame had destroyed the whole merit of her sacrifice. The king felt freed from all obligations. Exasperated beyond measure, and bitterly offended, he replied, I thank you, Madame. I shall never forget the service you have rendered me. And saluting her with an affectation of ceremony, he took his leave of her. As he passed before a glass, he saw that his eyes were red, and angrily stamped his foot on the ground. But it was too late, for Malicorne and D'Artagnan, who were standing at the door, had seen his eyes. "'The king has been crying,' thought Malicorne. D'Artagnan approached the king with a respectful air, and said in a low tone of voice, "'Sire, it would be better to return to your own apartments by the small staircase. Why? Because the dust of the road has left its traces on your face, said D'Artagnan. By heavens, he thought, when the king has given way like a child, let those look to it who may make the lady weep for whom the king sheds tears. End of chapter 30